Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I'm Erwin Kishner, Herrick's executive chairman, and I want to thank you for joining us. Hello, my name is Mitch Corby. I'm head of uh, Herrick Feinstein's zoning and land use team and uh, also part of Herrick's uh, terrific real estate department, one of the largest and certainly the busiest in the city of New York. Today, I'm very excited and pleased to have with us Sean Campion. And Sean is from the Citizens Budget Commission and and here to discuss with us a report that uh, he was a major part of and the author, the report being Improving New York City's Land Use Decision-Making Process. Uh, once again, by the CBC. And uh, John, uh, uh, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, maybe do a quick intro of, your, of, your, of yourself. You've been with us before on a different topic. Yeah, thank you for having me back. I'm Sean Campion. I'm the Director of Housing and Economic Development Studies at the Citizens Budget Commission. Um, for those of you listening who don't know, CBC is a fiscal policy think tank and watchdog um, that works on policy issues in New York City and New York State. We've been around for 90 years. Um, but we haven't really looked at land use issues before, and we've really started to look at them in the last few years as the process itself has become uh, more contentious, more time-consuming, and having started having consequences on you know the ability of New York State to remain a competitive place to grow business and an affordable place to live. And this is sort of why we turn to the subject of our conversation today. Well, that that's great, I, and I certainly agree. Of course, I would that uh, land use decision-making is critical in New York as an engine to our uh, economy uh, and uh, as a way to guide growth in the city. And we need to keep growing, right? We're now twice the size of Los Angeles. Let's just jump into it then. So your report is at at times critical, at at times makes really sound and important and lofty suggestions about how to improve the land use decision-making process. at, at times, it's it's political, and at times, it's really very substantive, and gets into the meat, gets into the meat of it. And, and and what a lot of this is about is two main things, as you describe in the report: ULERP, the Uniform Land Use Review Process, and then the Environmental Review Process, sometimes known as a as an EIS process, Environmental Impact Statement, uh, pursuant to the Seeker process. There are a lot of acronyms in this world. Um, that we, we exhibit, uh, which is the uh, secret process is a city environmental quality review. So um, let's just talk about ULERP for a moment, okay, that it requires right now a pretty robust level of public review, lots of public hearings, several steps along the way, and most or all rezonings, of course, require and, and most major development actions in the city require this process. Um, you criticize the process as having an insufficient amount of or, or less than sophisticated uh, amount of, of uh, public review. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So ULERP is obviously the it's the public facing portion of this year's long review process. And it's really the opportunity where the public and elected officials get to engage with rezoning proposals. But as you mentioned, it's, there really isn't a want of opportunity for public meetings, and public review. What we wanted to look at was the reasons why it had become so contentious um, and if there are opportunities to make it potentially more collaborative and productive. And 
I'm assuming that yeah, mo- most people listening to this podcast probably already know what ULERP is. But for those who don't, it's the binding review phase of the public review process. It's time limited. It takes no more than seven months. It includes advisory reviews of the community boards, the borough presidents, and then binding votes from the city planning commission and the city council. So it's you know four different four different votes and four different opinions that come down. And and, and sorry, four public hearings. And four public hearings, if not if not more. Right. That I mean that's a lot of public hearings. That's more than most cities have, and it's more votes than most cities have. There and there, I think there are really two main things that, that we found in our analysis of the process, both from sort of taking a look at quantitative data on applications that have gone through. And talking with people, you know, like you and, and your clients um, and elected officials as well, who actually sort of go through this process on a day-to-day basis. And it's really two things. One is sort of on the advisory vote side, which happens at the start with the community boards and the borough presidents. Those are just advisory votes. And they really happen too late in the process for the people who are participating in those to have a meaningful say on what actually is being proposed. Um and largely, that relates back to environmental review, because environmental review takes so long to produce and is so expensive and time consuming that you can only take really you can. This is simplifying a lot, but you can only take things out of the application without having to go back and reopen it and redo it. So you can't meaningfully change an application once you sort of get into this ULERP phase. You can take things away, but you can't like swap a hotel for an apartment building without having to redo your traffic analysis or something something to that effect. Um, so that really limits what you can do in those phases. So it's not really not, there's not really a whole lot of opportunity for collaborative and participatory planning in the advisory phase. At the end of the, the other end of the process at the city council, there's a challenge of member deference. So this has evolved over time. This is a custom. This is not a law, but the city council has developed a practice where as a body, they will typically defer to the wishes of the council member in whose district the rezoning application exists. And I think they've only they've only overridden council members twice since 2009. So it's very rare that this happens. And that, you know, that makes the process particularly uncertain for the applicant because at the end of the day, if they're really only satisfying the local council member, that makes it, you know, they've gone two and a half years up to that point of, you know, public review and negotiation and environmental review. And at the end, it comes down to this. It either makes it uncertain or very certain, right? In the sense that, well, you know who you're dealing with at the very beginning, right? If the member deference doctrine, which as you as you very accurately point out, is all about the local member whose district is most affected, notwithstanding how big the project might be, right? But if you know at the beginning that it's that member you need to focus on, then you know wouldn't the developer then spend an awful lot of time trying to court his, her, or their favor? Yes. And I think on the flip side, too, there's a chilling effect where if a developer or an applicant or even a city agency wants to do a project that has to go through this process, if they know at the end of the day a council member is not going to support it, they're not going to propose it in the first place and go through – you know, two and a half years of review, spend a few million dollars, ultimately to have nothing come out of it at the end. Yeah. Um, and part part of that is you know, the, the question of member deference. And part of that is also the sort of the cost of review. And, you know, a big chunk of that cost of review is in the environmental review phase. So there's sort of that double chilling effect on, on either side as well that discourages yeah. a lot of applications that, you know, might advance the city's strategic planning goals for any number of, of topics 
but discourage them from coming forward in the first place with good ideas that would be in the city, the interest of the city or the interest of a borough um, never get proposed in the first place. This is fascinating and, and important. As you describe it, it's, it's about these two separate approval processes, but one is front-loaded, the environmental review process. And as you say, a lot of time and effort is made creating and preparing those initial environmental documents. And then this public review process begins. And then at that point, as you say, it's, it's hard to change the project because, well, to do so would then mean starting the environmental process over again. But you also said that you can certainly shrink the project. Well, isn't it fair to say that when you're in front of the community board and you're in front of the borough presidents and even the city planning commission, frankly, what it tends to be about is, well, shrinkage, um, which is to say they tend not to make a large apartment complex that's subject to a rezoning bigger. They want to shrink it anyway. So what's the real problem? I think the, the, the problem is largely twofold. One is that we have a process that really, a, a rezoning process and a discretionary review process that only really works well for large projects in general because of the time and the cost involved and sort of the political sophistication that you need to navigate this process. It's a process that is really only financially feasible for large projects. They're able to absorb the cost and the risk and the uncertainty of going through this process. So like we found that, you know, for the median project, it takes two and a half years to navigate this whole thing from the, from the time that you formally applied at city planning to the time that the city council would approve you. Um, and that, Basically, that process increases your total development costs by 11 to 16 percent. And the, at, the, at the smaller end, that's really sort of on the larger projects that are better able to absorb those costs. If you have a small rezoning project, you're not going to go through this because, frankly, it's not financially worth your time um, to have to go through this whole process to get there at the end. Um, the other piece, too, on the, on the shrinkage side is that because of, you know, you have to, you know, you go through this Euler process where, you know, you have four different bites at the apple of someone who, you know, wants to get a win. You're really incentivized to overscope so that you can sort of go in and ask for 120% of what you want and give back some at the end. So you wind up with a project that's still financially feasible, but, you know, still has, you know, you've given back something either in terms of density, um, affordability, community benefits, things that you can give without necessarily then going back and reopening up the environmental review. And that's, I mean, I think that's part of every, every land use negotiation everywhere. There's like, there's no system that that's avoidable. Um, but the question is, is our process adding time and cost and uncertainty above and beyond what's necessary sort of as sort of a normal negotiation yeah. between a private developer and the public sector in a community that would happen anywhere? Well, certainly when I've been involved in these applications, and as you know, I have, we do try to have a scope at the beginning that's broad enough to encapsulate any possible changes. And we also try, in terms of the public review process, have as many meetings with the public as we can and achieve as much buy-in, if you will, as we can, not just from the local council member, but the people that are important to that, that council member, community groups, civ civic organizations. Um, the environmental law on which the process is based is I think quite old. It was written back in the day of the Clean Air Act and other federal statutes. Um, and we've been living with this environmental law for many years. Now it's been 
I guess, updated in terms of its interpretation. Um, but isn't one of your criticisms also sort of based on the fact that this environmental, the set of environmental rules haven't really kept pace? Things like, uh, uh, shouldn't we be revisiting the, uh, the traffic analysis and the traffic counts and, and other kinds of things? What, what would you say about, about the environmental laws themselves? I think you're right. So um, CICRA, um, you know, followed on the, the Federal Environmental Review Law, which I think the federal law went into effect in 1970. Segre, I believe, went into effect in 1975. I'm playing amateur legal historian here. This was before you were born. Uh, By a few years, <laughs> not, not not that many. But yeah, I think you're right. So like all these laws really were in response to sort of the excesses and the abuses of the urban renewal era um, and sort of the nascent environmental movement. So it's like both sort of correcting against sort of the top-down planning abuses of you know the 1960s. And also trying to, you know, legitimately address environmental concerns about the impacts of, you know, large projects, both, you know, sort of public works projects and individual projects on the environment and the built environment, the natural environment, people's health and safety, um, and their impact on communities. Um, so it's like, it's, it's one of the things like both laws come from a place of, you know, uh, of concern, but from a different time and a different era. The planning process that we have now is different than what we had in 1960. And the environmental laws that we have now are different than we had in the in 1960s. Um, so we regulate the environment and planning in, in many different ways than we did then. But it also doesn't necessarily reflect the, the pro-environmental policies that we want to exist today. I, I won't say that it's universal, but you know, I think there's a general consensus among environmentalists and planners that, you know, certain types of development have known environmental benefits, trans-oriented development, you know, trying to promote infill growth in existing areas, trying to limit greenfield development and sprawl, trying to encourage public transit, discourage, you know, private vehicle travel, um, and, you know, trying to make, you know, jobs accessible to people both sort of by transit and, you know, I mean, physically, you know, close to their homes. Um, and, you know, we should have a planning process that, you know, makes it easier to identify and promote development that we think has societal benefits. And the environmental review process that we have today isn't necessarily designed to identify advanced projects that I think generally are considered to have known environmental benefits. It's really more about forcing public officials to identify the impacts of public decisions and potentially to come up with some strategies to mitigate those impacts. And it's, it's not necessarily if we were to design a process today for evaluating the impacts of land use decisions on the environment, I don't think that that's the system that we would have. And frankly, most states don't. New York is one of only seven states that does require this for land use decision-making right. process. Right. There is some built-in flexibility, though, right, that even if the EIS identifies certain impacts that have to be mitigated, that have mm -hmm. to be resolved, it's still possible for the decision-makers, the planning commission, and ultimately the city council, to approve the project anyway without those measures, the so-called unmitigatable impacts, right? Well, we recognize that this will have an impact on such a transit system. We're going to approve the project anyway because uh, the benefits outweigh the, the negatives. But I, I, I think it does present a challenge to, uh, politically, right? Yes. Um, and 
I think if, you know, we've been thinking about this and sort of like trying to find ways that we can rebalance the process between benefits and costs. Whereas right now it's like, it is I mean, practically, as you say, you know, planning officials and elected officials do make that calculus. Like they think that, you know, we're going to prove this because we think the benefits outweigh the costs, but they do that process sort of informally on their own. The process doesn't require them to sort of say, yes, this product is aligned with X, Y, and Z planning goals. And we acknowledge that it will have, you know, these impacts on, you know, schools or streets or, you know, or, or water or what have you. Um, and we, you know, it's like, and we're formally balancing this process in this way. And we yeah. think that we can address these costs through other public policy measures. Right now, it's just sort of saying, you know, this is a tool that is supposed to help you inform your decision making, but doesn't formally link between the two. I think it's a, a new process could better balance that. That's that's very interesting. What say you about your reports missing the city rezonings? Because I, I don't think you touch on these too much. Um, that is to say, a, a major contribution to the Euler process and into the issues we're, we're discussing is the city's own rezonings. In fact, those tend to be the larger ones, right? The city rezones the Gowanus Canal neighborhood, Soho, NoHo, East New York, before that, East Midtown, and before that, uh, you, you know, Hudson Yards and all the rest. So, so what do you think about city rezonings, and do they also have some of the same issues? Yes. Um, and for, I mean, and it's the same process for public or private rezoning applications, too. So I think all the lessons that, that we point to in our report apply as much or more to the public rezonings. Um, part of the reason why we looked at just private rezoning applications is because there are more of them. Um, you know, in the period, the four year period that we looked at, there are 177 applications from private parties, um, compared to only about, I think six public rezoning applications. Um, so there are just frankly more of them. We can draw more of a conclusion, which we think will be applicable to the public rezonings as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the public rezonings are really where sort of the, the way the city can address its planning challenges at scale be it trying to increase housing production, you know, trying to rethink the future of Midtown and the central business districts, trying to address issues of resiliency, trying to modernize industrial districts. The city needs to do that at the neighborhood, at the borough, at the citywide level. And that's really happening through rezonings brought by the city. And as you said, it's the same issues facing the public rezonings as the private rezonings. And there are a lot of good reasons why the city wants to take a long time. They want to do the engagement. They want to do the planning studies. They want to get the details right. And because these regions get built out, like you said, you mentioned, you know, Hudson Yards, East Midtown, Gowanus, down, even like downtown Brooklyn and Long Island City, they get built out over decades. So they're going to shape the future of neighborhoods over the course of decades. Um, and it's really important to get those details right. And this is really where sort of getting at trying to fix the process so we can approve these rezoning to address big zoning challenges really matter and where the political um, the political calculus and the political incentives for elected officials in particular aren't necessarily aligned with the benefits of these rezonings. Um, cause if you have a rezoning, you know, public rezoning can take eight years. That's an entire city council term just to mm-hmm. get from the time it's first proposed to the time that city council would approve it. And that council member, and if you, you know, time it, time it wrong, you know, you could be straddling two or even three council terms. Right. And, and the citywide rezonings are, 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 are enormous. Some of them, uh, uh, you know, the Williamsburg Greenpoint rezoning in 2003 uh, stimulated the development. And as you point out, it's taken decades 
uh, of hundreds and maybe thousands of units. You, your report, I think, in the most intriguing section for me, um, refers to a concept of a supermajority on the city council for certain kinds of actions. And, and when the council wants the, to deny a land use action, to deal with this member deference conundrum, maybe there ought to be a supermajority, a two-thirds vote required or whatever of the city council. I, I think that is, uh, you know, again, uh, exciting, <laughs> intriguing, and interesting. I've often thought to myself sometimes about creating a, a bicameral or two-house city legislature. And New York City is bigger than two-thirds of the states. Many of them, of course, have a house and a Senate or its equivalent. Why not do something like that? But you're touching on something very similar. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about about this and, and why you seem to suggest the city council is dysfunctional? Yeah, so we're trying to come up with ways to sort of get at this question of member deference. And it's hard to do structurally, as I said, because it's, it's just a, it's a policy choice by the council. There's no, it's not written in a law anywhere that you can go in and change. So we're trying to think about what are the different structural ways that you can sort of address this. Um, one of them was the idea of like, well, maybe we can require a, a supermajority to vote against it. Um, same way that like, if to override a mayoral veto, you need more than a simple majority of the council. There's an, there's an analog to with the state um, GPP process, where if the city city planning commission votes against a state rezoning proposal, it requires supermajority of the ESD board in order to approve it. So there there are other examples of this where um, it's in this case like if the city plan if the city council wants to override the city planning commission. Potentially even for a small subset of projects that they designate as being of citywide importance, for example, um, that could be a way of addressing that. We've also had other ideas of doing an appeals process. They're saying like maybe that shouldn't be the end of the line. Maybe you can kick it back to the city planning commission, and the city planning commission could vote it um, with a supermajority. Or maybe you could kick it to you know another another body of citywide elected officials, you know, between like borough presidents and um, public advocate and the mayor. We then would have a final say, something something maybe closer in line to the old board of estimate. Sean, I think that's really interesting, and, and I think many of many folks in, in the city would find this interesting. What do we need to do to make that happen? Charter reform, the, <laughs> right? The, the yeah, the two least appealing words in in city governance. Um, yeah, um, I mean that, that it really would take a lot of thought and planning and public engagement in order to implement something like that. It's not a change that, that, that we're proposing lightly. No, I understand. Um, but we've changed the charter before in, in ways that have not been useful to council members like term limits, right? Which yep. some of us like and uh, others don't. But this, I guess, would be a, a change to the charter akin to 1989 when the Board of Estimate was disbanded, right? And I think it's really more about, again, sort of on the, like going back to the theme of rebalancing, um, having a check... So where there's a body that represents citywide interests, longer term interests, whereas the council is sort of rightly and fairly incentivized to prioritize short term political concerns over longer term benefits that they're not going to be around to experience. Um, So it's sort of like forcing, you know, having that better balance between, you know, citywide and local and short term and long term. If we can build that in structurally into the system in a way that doesn't exist now, it might help. Right, and these short-term issues are exacerbated, made worse by the uh, by by term limits. We don't really have a strong mayor form of government, do we? In this sort of arena, 
because the mayor proposes his planning commission or her planning commission proposes, and then the city council and maybe one person in light of member deference can disrupt it. Uh, can we use an example in the remaining time that we have? Uh, I'm thinking of two, uh, Long Island City uh, didn't even get a chance to get off the ground. It was last rezoned in 2001 and surely could be rezoned again, but there was some kind of political snafu between then council member Van Bramer and then Mayor de Blasio, but it, it sort of fell apart after a lot of work by city planning because it didn't have the support of a local member. In a situation like that, how do you bring something forward when you know that the local member doesn't doesn't support it? That's sort of the political million-dollar question. We had some ideas. I mean, obviously, some of it is sort of the, the structural relief valve of this appeals process or the supermajority requirement. Short of getting – short of you know, cutting the council out of the process, which I think is a non-starter for everyone, the other – potential option is to, you know, rethink the way that we actually evaluate projects and to be much clearer at sort of identifying projects that are very clearly aligned with the city's strategic planning goals. Like the city, there's no want of planning in the city. There's The city puts out, you know, I think we enumerated in the list in, in our report, the long list of long range plans that the de Blasio administration put out. And the relatively few rezonings that actually emer- you know, emerge from them. But, you know, there, there are a few successes, MIH, um, you know, Gowanus and Soho, that you know, advanced their fair housing goals at the end. Um, but, for the yeah. most, but, but for the most part, there wasn't that linkage. Um, and I think like, having a, a stronger link between planning goals and projects and rezonings that are aligned with planning goals and the end um, of getting it through the Euler process even if it's just like a, a strictly a messaging tool um, right. or creating right. the presumption that these should advance could be a way of breaking that log jam. Um, Cause otherwise member deference is sort of the, you know, the, the, it, it's always going to exist as long as the city council has a role and as long as the speakers allow it to exist. Well, I think that's a critical point, right? You just touched on, which is the role of the speaker and the relationship between the speaker and the mayor. I'm mindful of how, Former Speaker Vallone had an alliance with Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani, and, and, and much got done. Um, that that's a that's a critical point. Um, uh, you know, we can't ignore the fact that that this is a democratic process in New York, and that local people are affected most directly, and that having a local member have a lot to say is important. And there is some democratic uh, value behind. Uh, the member deference doctrine, but I, I appreciate all that you've been saying. Uh, before we finish, and of course you and I could could talk on and on about this, uh, the city planning staff has been reduced by 25%. They're struggling not because they're not super smart, uh, I call them New York's smartest, um, but because they, there's not enough of them. And, and, you know, Brooklyn is bigger than Chicago now, and the Brooklyn Planning Department is, of course, nothing like the Chicago Department of City Planning. So what do we do? I mean, how do we, how do we get more folks? And, and is it a question of salaries? One agency seems to be stealing from another. So part of what's wrong with ULERP is not so much the process, but the people, not the people, sorry, but the, the, the fact we don't have enough of them. Yeah, I think one thing, and this is, I think, not, not unique to city planning, you know, there's over 25,000 vacancies in city government right now across the city. Um, not evenly distributed, but I think one thing that CBC has called on for a long time is making it easier to easier to hire people 
and faster to hire people. The city's hiring process is really slow, cumbersome, and bureaucratic. And it makes it hard to to get and keep the best people. So there are a lot of sort of like internal ways that, that would benefit city planning as well, in addition to a lot of other city agencies. The other piece of it too is sort of what we want those people doing with their time. Is the best use of city planning time having to sit and, and go through this environment, shepherd project through the environmental review process, or would we rather have our city planners planning? The question is like, can can we make can we make planning more efficient by making the, this venue review process more efficient, streamlined, faster, cheaper, um, so they can really do what they want to do, which is plan for the city, rather than sort of going through this bureaucratic exercise of doing environmental review oversight. Um, as much. And that could free up a lot of staff time and resources and money as well. Well, maybe, Sean, but there there are so few, and I, I used to work there, but there are so few people there that it's a, a, even if we did some of that, that only helps a little. I think we need to pay them more and we need to ha- have, have more of them. And yeah. I appreciate the budget constraints we're all under and, and I understand the priorities need to be set, but I do think that uh, part of what will, will help some of this would be to hire more folks. I would assume also that we could have higher filing fees, marginally higher filing fees to help pay for staff. And that would be okay by uh, some of our clients, I'm sure. Any any parting thoughts? I mean, this report is getting a lot of attention. I, I think it'll get more attention. Anything you wanted to add? I would say my, my final plug is that this is really something that should be on the radar of the state legislature, which is something that we haven't talked about as well. Um, yeah. But so much of land use and planning and environmental review law descends from the state legislature to local governments, not just New York City, but local governments throughout the state. Um, and lots of other states have really been taking the lead on modernizing planning environmental review law. New York State has really fallen behind on that. Um, and there's a lot of opportunities for change at the state level that will benefit the city, not just New York City, but local governments all across the state. Well, thank you, Sean. Um, we've been talking with uh, Sean Campion. Uh, Sean's with the CBC, the Citizens Budget Commission. Uh, and, and we've been tra- chatting about uh, a remarkable and robust report regarding improving New York City's land use decision making. Uh, I would encourage everyone listening to read it, digest it, talk about it, go to your uh, local pub or hangout or coffee shop or, or vegan dive and um, and chat about it with with person next to you and, and your partners and friends and your elected officials. It's critical to New York's growth and development and to our lives. Thank you, Sean. Thanks again for having me. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional recordings, please visit us at www.herrick.com. Herrick.com.